This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hurricane Irma is expected to hit Florida this weekend right now. Uh, we uh, have seen some interesting pictures and interesting stories. Of course, that has just torn apart the Caribbean with some terrible stories about uh, the devastation and the deaths that have occurred there. And uh, now what's going to happen in Florida? Well, we know that it is going to make landfall in uh, Florida at some time over the weekend. Mike Armstrong, national correspondent with Global News, is in Miami and uh, joins us on the Bill Keller Show to give us an update. Mike, good morning. How are you doing today? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Thanks. I gotta listen. I gotta ask you. I, I'm just just looking at some pictures uh, from uh, the television news and online today. Uh, it looks like it's actually a pretty nice day in South Florida right now. The sun is shining in some spots, anyway. It kind of belies the impending doom of what's happening, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a little surreal. I mean, you've got this beautiful city by the by the ocean. Uh, and it's and blue skies, you know, the clouds from the beginning of The Simpsons. Like, it looks beautiful <laughs> uh, here. And yet you've probably got one twentieth the traffic you would normally have. Um, we're standing at a gas station that was open when we pulled up this morning. Uh, and the attendant said, well, we're just waiting for it to r- run dry. And there was a line of 10 to 15 cars basically at all times. And sure enough, uh, it, it ran dry. And if you go down 100 meters away, there was a gas station that was closed. And it's now open. Uh, the governor's been trying to keep gas stations, uh, tanker trucks coming down to fill gas stations. He's asked gas companies to stay open as long as possible. Uh, so they're just constantly moving fuel down, moving fuel down to try and make sure everybody has the gas they need if they want to evacuate. Um, you can't outrun Irma if you run out of gas. We saw what happened with Harvey last week in, in Texas, obviously, uh, Mike, and, and Houston, uh, that was the, uh, a, a serious problem with what happened there with the flooding, etc. And, and in hindsight, of course, a lot of people said they should have evacuated the city. With that in mind, has, has that been a factor in the number of people that have taken the governor's call to get out? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if how the media coverage and the fact that we, you know, people pointed out how bad Harvey was, whether that's one of the factors that's making more people maybe go to shelters. But if you go to shelters, you run into people who say, uh, you know, I'm from Florida, I've lived here for years, and I've never been to a shelter before, but this storm feels different. I've gotten that a few times. I mean, the coastal areas are under a mandatory evacuation order. Uh, further inland, you're not under a mandatory evacuation order, and we're in the uh, Brickle neighborhood. So basically, uh, everybody I've spoken to today was either um, hitting the road uh, to go north, or they were just saying they're going to you know, ride this one out at home, which feels wrong, but they're not under an evacuation order, so uh, it's supposed to be safe uh, for Category 4. Yeah, it has been downgraded, and I guess we have to use that term advisedly, don't we? I mean, going from a 5 to a 4 does not necessarily mean that this thing is, is blown out. Uh, this is still a major storm. Oh, it's still going to be an absolute catastrophe. That's what that's what they're saying. I mean, a, a, a Category 4 uh, making a direct hit on a major metropolitan city uh, that just doesn't happen. That said, when you downgrade it from a five to a four, that does make a big difference. I mean, uh, these a lot of these high rises in Miami, of which there are many, um, they were built after uh, Hurricane Andrew in '92, and there were strong building codes brought in. But a category, they're not necessarily made to withstand a, a direct hit from a category five. A category four, they should be able to withstand. Um, it's about 165 uh, miles per hour. I don't, uh, excuse me, kill, no miles per hour. I'm trying to convert everything. Anyway, um, yeah. After all these years, that, you're still trying to do it in your head, I know. Yeah, that little bit of a difference, though, from a Category 5 to a Category 4 makes a big difference. That's it. And one of the weird things, the cranes on the top of buildings, 
they actually uh, let them spin like a weather vane. That's apparently the safer thing to do. Uh, but when you look up and you see one of those cranes and you think there's a Category 4 coming, uh, it's a little unsettling. Well, that's the, one of the shots I saw today. There's a lot of construction going on in Miami right now with those cranes above in, in those tall office buildings right now. Uh, I, I would think that if, if somebody's working or living in the downtown area, they think this is probably not a good place to be when this thing hits. Yeah, well, um, a lot of the hotels have all closed. Um, that said, the one we're seeing in uh, has not. Uh, we're right, right downtown. They were at about 20 to 30% occupancy the night we showed up a couple of nights ago. They're now, at, uh, they tell me, about 100% because of all the hotels around closing. But in order to stay in the hotel last night, again, a little unsettling, you had to sign a waiver. Uh, <laughs> so I never had to do that in a hotel before. Uh, it's basically saying you're taking uh, your chances and you realize what the risks are going to be. Yes, Marriott is not responsible for that. <laughs> yeah, I, of all the traveling I've done, that, that's new to me too, going into a hotel. Uh, usually it's a red flag, but in this case, I guess it's it's something that just has to be done. Uh, how are people during, I, I mean, we've seen the pictures, Mike, of, of the roads going out of Miami, the highways, and it's, it's log jammed, obviously. It's gridlocked right now. Uh, airports, obviously, were a part of that. Some of the airlines, obviously, were offering discount flights to try to get people out of there. How busy is the airport right now, and how are people using transportation to try to move out of there, if, in fact, that's their choice? Yeah, well, the, the roads, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, the further south you are, uh, the clearer the roads are. But it's as you move north into sort of Orlando, and that's when the congestion starts. You know, the, the, the more people that the, you're sort of gathering, hitting that road all in the same direction. So, I mean, apparently out of Miami, a drive that would normally take three hours was taking nine hours yesterday. Uh, as for the airports, yeah, they're getting ready to close. Fort Lauderdale's last flight is supposed to be 7.45 tonight. Miami International's last flight uh, 4 p.m. Uh, but they're trying to stay open as long as possible. Now, that said, they're not storm shelters. Um, so, but they have people that are just sort of camping there, waiting, hoping to get on a plane. Uh, there aren't enough planes. Um, they're tr- you know, uh, all these airlines are bringing in extra flights to try and get people out. But if you were on a cruise ship and maybe you had a few days where you were supposed to, and you had a flight that was leaving maybe, say, sa- Saturday, Sunday, Monday, something like that, you're trying to get out, there isn't necessarily a flight for you. That's um, the whole thing. The we yeah. We're not just talking about locals here. That's a, as you say, it's a center for cruises right now. People that you know from Miami, from Lauderdale, places like that, uh, they they embark from there, they return to there, and they got to hop a plane and get back. And that may not necessarily be something that they can do now because of this circumstance. Exactly, and there are no hotels to go to now. If they're stuck at the airport, the airports are saying that uh, once they close, they're going to take everybody who's there to a shelter. But they're trying to keep open as as long as possible, as long as the airlines will fly down and and take off again, they'll, they'll stay open. But if you're running an airport, you also have staff that you have to worry about, too. Each of those people has family and, and a home that they're worried about, too. You've seen the pictures of what this uh, storm has done in the Caribbean. Uh, through. Uh, so, well, we saw Puerto Rico and other places, St. Martin, and it's been devastating right now. Is, is there a concern? I, obviously, there's a concern, but, I mean, is there a, a fear? I, I mean, are people simply saying, well, I've been there, done that? As you mentioned, there's a lot of locals that have been there for some time that say, look, it, I know this is supposed to be a big one, but you know what, they, they say that about all of them, we're just going to stick this out. Or, or are they legitimately saying, no, maybe this is the time to get out of here? Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of people say that this one's different, that they uh, normally would be sitting at home, but this time they're going to a shelter. And uh, I went to one of the shelters yesterday. They built, uh, it was a high school that was built like a bunker, I'm, uh, like, a, like a bomb shelter almost. That's what it looks like. No windows at all. 
so it can fit literally thousands of people. Uh, they had, I think, 300 this morning, but I, I'm pretty sure you can expect that to go up uh, considerably today. And as a matter of fact, it's almost hard to keep, no, it's not almost, it is hard to keep track of how many shelters there are open because they're opening more and more uh, basically every day. We've the now famous South Beach and, and the beautiful beaches with the hotels, etc., right by the shoreline there. We know now, we've learned more about hurricanes, I think, Mike, in the last couple of months than probably ever we wanted to know about them, but <laughs> storm surge is another phrase, that, and we saw that happen, of course, with Harvey, and, and we certainly have seen the impact that it's had uh, through Puerto Rico when this happened, too. Uh, How is the city trying to protect themselves against that shoreline? I mean, because this, this is going to be a significant impact. Yeah, you can't really protect yourself against storm surge. And, and Harvey was more flooding straight down from the sky. Yeah. It was just so much rain, 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 rain. And I was there last, I was there earlier this, what day is it today? Earlier this week I was there. And you saw that uh, the homes had no damage at all sort of uh, to the roof. And yet the whole first floor was completely destroyed by water. Here, uh, especially in this area, sort of downtown, that storm surge comes up. It's, it's salt water. It's... Uh, um, it, and it's flooding, but it's also waves. You know, so when you hear a storm surge that could be three meters high, you can add on the tide if it's high tide, and you can also add on waves. I mean, big waves because uh, you know it's a hurricane, and those waves—that's one of the things that'll do a lot of damage. And Miami deals with flooding on um, on mild storms because of rising sea levels. Yeah. Uh, it does not drain easily. So uh, how downtown reacts to this, that's that's really a huge question. Uh, we're getting down to the short strokes right now. You mentioned you were you were in Texas last week. You saw what happened with Harvey. And you, this is a different kind of storm, a more powerful storm. Uh, what, what are the next 24 to 36 hours going to be like for you, and where are you going to be when this thing hits landfall? Yeah, we're at a hotel right downtown. Um, very nice room, unfortunately, on the 29th floor. So uh, <laughs> hopefully power uh, stays on because uh, I'm, we're worrying a little bit about staircases. Um, but uh, the building codes, they say that these buildings are built to withstand a Category 4. So when we woke up this morning and saw that downgrading, that was good news. Um, but flooding will be the big issue. And we've got crews that are going to be further up north, so we're trying to stay down here to, to see how the flooding, uh, as opposed to the wind, to see how the flooding affects this community. Mike, stay safe. Uh, it's this is one of the things about journalism that uh, you want to be there where things are happening, but at the same time you've uh, you got to look out for yourself too. It's uh, it's going to be a rough time for everybody. I know it's a busy time for you today, and I know you got to file with uh, our friends back at Global, and uh, we'll be watching for your reports, of course. Uh, uh, Global News at six thirty tonight. Thanks so much for this, Mike. Thank you. Have a great day. Take care. That's Mike Armstrong, national correspondent for Global News. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. My uh, commentary at 8.10 this morning, uh, Hamilton Council's short-sighted approach, and I think we saw that happen again uh, earlier this week at a uh, committee of the whole meeting, or whatever they call it, on general issues, I guess now. Uh, and they dealt with uh, the concept of uh, the Commonwealth Games coming here. Now, we told you about this briefly yesterday. Well, actually, a few weeks ago we broached the subject. Uh, some members of staff, and, and I guess uh, some actually members of the Commonwealth Committee on a national level, uh, thought it would be a great idea for Hamilton to host the 2030 Commonwealth Games, uh, because that's the 100th anniversary of the Games, and the first one was held right here in Hamilton in 1930. And uh, they thought, well, you know, th that's what they tend to do with these sorts of things, you know, hold them at the, where it, it originated. It kind of makes sense from a romance side, I suppose, but there's dollars and cents and a number of other things. 
So uh, a member of city staff uh, approached the the committee uh, yeah, the, earlier this week and said, look, it, we can do a report for you just to let you know what the good, the bad of this, and maybe you know throw some numbers at you about what might happen so you could consider this. And they said, no cost. I mean, we've got, we can do this on our own time. No problem at all. And uh, by a vote, a very narrowest of vote, uh, council said, no, we don't even need the information. We just, we're not interested in doing this at all. And uh, I've, I've received a lot of pushback on both sides of this issue. Some people say, yeah, you know, we should be fixing sewers. And of course we should. That's city council's job, part of their job anyway, to look after the infrastructure and get all that stuff done. But there's another element to, to being a leader, especially a political leader right now. And that was the, uh, the, the, the gist of the comment today. Uh, I said, look, I don't know at this point if pursuing a bid for the Commonwealth Games is a good idea for Hamilton. Uh, but neither do council know that because they don't have any information on it. They don't know what the cost-benefit might be. They don't know how, how much the city might have to put into it. They don't know how much they would accrue from federal and provincial governments. They've got this don't let the facts get in the way of my opinion attitude. This is not the first time we've seen this. And I think it really stilts Hamilton's potential. John Best has been observing City Hall for the longest of times. He, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hi, John. How are you doing this morning? Just great, Bill. Uh, give me give me your read on this. And, and listen, I, I don't expect all 15 or 16 people around a council table at any given time to be these visionaries that are going to talk about you know how we can make this a better city in 20 and 30 years. But th- there's a closed-mindedness now that just seems to rear its ugly head way too often at this council. Well, uh, you know, I looked at the at the staff recommendation, and if you take now, mind you, uh, uh, it says cost implications. It appears it's the the proposed study was going to be done on staff time, and there was going to be no incremental cost. You know, I I think it's always good to to have information, and why they wouldn't allow uh, at least that part of it to go forward, uh, I I don't understand. But having said that. Um, I know also that sometimes, uh, and we can look at other examples, uh, there's a kind of momentum that sometimes gets into place, and before we know it, uh, it's gone too far down the road, and all of a sudden we, we end up with a situation, if you want an extreme example, like LRT, where we wake up one day and, and told that it's been approved. I don't know whether what the number's up to now, but it's 50, 70, I don't know how many approvals. So... You have to be a little bit careful. Um, there's the, the black art of uh, report writing uh, <laughs> rears its ugly head at, at council. But, but on the surface, uh, it seemed like a fairly innocent idea. And, it, and it's kind of funny because I was, I was just reading a, a story in the Victoria Times, uh, Victoria, B.C. paper uh, earlier this week. And apparently, what, uh, actually, there, there's some consideration of them going after the 2030 games. And uh, one of uh, the people in uh, Victoria uh, that was uh, discussing the matter said, well, what's the point in us going after the 2030 games? They're probably going to go to Hamilton. So (laughs) that's kind of interesting that, you know, a a potential rival city is uh, sort of acknowledging that Hamilton, if if we wanted the games, has has got the bid. Although in the same story, the head of the Commonwealth Games Federation was encouraging Victoria to, to go after the 2030 games uh, because they, they submitted a bid for the 2022 games, which apparently didn't win but was apparently quite uh, impressive. So, you know, lo- a lot of talk. What I do know is that it appears that the 
decision to go after the games, the really formal decision, has to take place about eight years in advance of the games. So mm-hmm. that would be 2022. And, um, you know, we quite a bit of time between now and then. I mean, my, my inclination, I'm, I'm not in favor, by the way, of going after games. Uh, I, I'm not even in favor of going after Olympic games. I, I think they're just, we saw what happened in Brazil. Um, you know, I, I just think we should probably find a permanent site for these games and get on with it. Having said that, I, I don't see any harm in, in letting staff pull some information together. That, and, and that's the debate, uh, you know, should we do this? Uh, and, and you make some very valid points about this, and, and I share a lot of that concern as well. But on the other hand, uh, let's look at the information. What, what, what bothers me about this, John, is when they simply dismiss things out of hand. And, and I get that, that, you know, this is a democracy, fine. But it just seems that every time the city says, you know what, we got an opportunity here to look at something that may, may or may not, uh, enhance this city's future. And it's, well, no, we don't want to build an expressway. No, we don't want to build a stadium. No, we don't want to develop the waterfront. Like, it's, my God, I mean, we stagnate here. And it, it's, it's almost like the successes that we've enjoyed, and we have had some over the last little while, have been in spite of council, not because of it. Well, uh, I guess, you know, there's two sides to every issue. One's yes and one's no. And, and the reality is we did build a stadium and we did build an expressway after a lot of tortuous uh, uh, debate. But, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's the old Churchillian comment that, you know, our system is the worst possible except for all the rest. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I can, I can really, I can understand somebody having a knee-jerk reaction that we just don't want to go through this again. We don't want to go through this tulip mania kind of a thing again. Uh, but, you know, this was a pretty innocent proposal uh, to have staff. You know, and the other thing about this uh, that, that I would say is, yes, perhaps the mood although uh, on the current council is against this, although there's a, a very good chance that this whole thing's going to get flipped next week when everybody's back in their chair. But having said that, what we're really doing as well, if, if we don't do some preliminary work now, we're really perhaps... Um, you know, having a negative effect on a, on a decision that a council four years from now that might have different people on it, uh, although that's highly unlikely yeah. in the case of Hamilton. Um, but you know, there's a we're, we're kind of tying the hands a, a little bit of a future council uh, because we we haven't done a little bit of preliminary work, and who knows what the political mood and and the, for that matter what the economy will look like in say 2021 or 22 when when we'd have to get serious about a bid. We've been down this road before, but I mean, when you look at some of the things that have happened, and and yes, we did build a stadium, but you know, and I don't want to get into the to the kerfuffle about who who said what and and the delays, etc. Uh, it's well documented, but it, I, I think this consensus among an awful lot of people, whichever side you were on on this, that the problems with the stadium probably started with again, council didn't want information. They they decided no, 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 we don't want staff to come back and evaluate sites. We these are the sites we want you to look at. And, and it started to fall apart right then. In other words, they started to micromanage instead of letting people who know how to do this job do their job. And, and I got the sense the same thing is happening here. It just seems as if there, there's far too many people on council, John, that, that are looking inwardly. You know, they, they, they want to be what they call ward healers. You know, let, I'll, I'll fix the cracks on the sidewalk. We'll get this done and that done. And that's part of the job, sure. But there's, there's also, I think, a, a greater responsibility for elected officials, especially at the municipal level, to have some sort of idea about city building and trying to do something for the future. And I don't think a lot of people around on this council even get that. 
Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't think that's really all that different uh, from any other municipal council. Uh, you know, typically the, the vision probably has to come from really the mayor because the, uh, you know, the, 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 there's the odd councillor that'll, that'll have a big picture. But even if you look at Toronto with 40-odd people and you look at some of the squabbles they get into, most of it is centered around, uh, uh, you know, uh, supporting what they think will fly in, in an individual neighborhood. And, and look at the mess we get into uh, with that. Um, you know, you take a look at, at transit in Toronto where there's a, a general notion that Scarborough is underserved when it comes to transit. And, and so what we're getting are these crazy solutions like a one-stop subway that... Um, and it's going to cost as much as a seven or eight stop LRT line, uh, you know, just crazy stuff uh, going on. So, you know, it is still local. We had the story earlier this week about uh, the provincial transport minister trying to get a, a go stop in his riding uh, when uh, the expertise uh, at Metrolink said that that would be a not only wouldn't pay for itself, but would actually be detrimental to the whole system. So, you know, uh, the the you know, you, in an ideal world, yeah, everybody'd be walking around with their with their eye on the on the big prize, but it's uh, that's not the reality that we have to live with. Which is maybe why once in a while when somebody with that vision and and the courage to to stick to a vision like that comes along, that's maybe why they stick out as much as they do. And we've had some, John, in the time that you've been, you know, studying council here. Uh, you know, Vic Cops, I think, had a vision for the city. Uh, Jack McDonald had a vision for the city. Now, you could have agreed or disagreed with them, but they, they had this idea. It wasn't just about, hey, what's going to be good for me for the next election? It's what's going to be good for the city over the next few years. And, and you don't see a whole lot of that in politics anymore. No, you don't. And, and frankly, you don't see it at any level. It's really become a, a grinded-out kind of a, you know, if you think about a visionary. I, I suppose you could say that Obama, to a certain degree, was was a visionary uh but he's but you know the uh, history will will prove it one way or the other but the early results are that he really didn't get a hell of a lot done during his eight years be you know he was thwarted by his congress obviously but um it you know even if you have vision uh it's sometimes with the nature of politics now it's very difficult to implement a vision uh unless you can somehow transmit it and get a get an entire council or, or uh, legislative body enthused about it we, we just don't see that in uh, in modern politics it's really become a very granular um, just tough it out day-to-day kind of a process well part of the problem may well be because some of the people that that, that expounded those visions in the past history has shown that maybe it was the wrong way to go uh, I mean, you know, we, we talked about some of the early mayors back in the 1960s, uh, and part of that vision, let's face it, was let's tear down all the old buildings and build something brand new, and, and that's going to make our city thrive. Well, it didn't quite work out the way they had thought it was going to. And, and Hamilton wasn't the only one that did that. Most uh, North American cities fell into that mantra, and uh, and we're still recovering from that now by you know fixing that problem, et cetera. So... But but I get that. But the point I made during the commentary was, look, at there are people in this community that, that do have that courage and that vision. And, and, you know, McMaster, when I was a kid, was just this little university in the West End. It's now one of the top-rated universities in the world because they invested. They took some gambles, and, and, and it's paid off for them. We've got people in this business, in this country, in this city, really, that started off with literally nothing. 
uh, that built their businesses into these fabulous international conglomerates. And that started right here in Hamilton. So we've got the, the brain trust here. We've got the people with the vision. It just doesn't seem that very many of them uh, work at City Hall. Well, and, you know, uh, if you if you really look at, at what is in front of council right now, I, I'm not sure. This might have been one of those cases where it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission because there was no money involved. They were simply going to second a staffer to pull some information together. And in retrospect, it might have been better to do that, just get it done, and, and then present uh, uh, the findings to council. So, so now you got kind of a crazy situation where um, they're, they're sort of being forbidden to, to do something, and it, you know it's kind of a silly thing. But it, this may well indeed get, as I say, totally turned around. The mayor's coming back next week uh, from Columbia, so... Um, you know, uh, having been, just been on an international tour, uh, I, uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to be, in, in fact, he's known to be in favor of this. So we, we could be looking at a very short-term issue here, Bill. Yeah, and let's keep in mind the reason that the mayor's in Columbia right now is because of the connections that they made during the Pan Am Games last year. So, uh, I mean, for those that say, well, there's no net benefit to this, well, you know, the, his trip down there probably belies that, that maybe there are some business connections uh, so you can't be dismissive of that, but it's it's always been that way. And 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 again, to go back to the stadium issue, there were people on council back in those days. No, we don't want to build a new stadium. Well, you know, the one you had was forty five, fifty thousand years old, whatever it was. It was falling apart. Here's a chance to build a stadium with federal and 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 uh, and provincial tax dollars to to augment the money that the city's going to put in. And they still said no. We're going to save the taxpayers' money. Well, that's 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 political BS. You know that that we would have had to do it totally on our tax base instead of federal and provincial money. But they, they spin this, this yarn, and people buy into it, thinking, hey, they're starting to save. It's, it's short-term thinking, and, it, and I think it hurts this city when, when, when that's the prevailing attitude at City Hall. Yeah, it's too bad. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, the stadium, for all of these uh, problems they're having right now with uh, uh, lingering structural issues, uh, you know, it's still a beautiful facility, uh, and and part of the reason we have this problem is because we got put on a very artificially short timeline because of what you said earlier. We, we really didn't explore uh, alternatives, uh, you know, and a lot of people, and I still see uh, comments uh, talking about why, why, why didn't we take a look at uh, Confederation Park, where we would have had another year of leisure to build this thing and and get it right and have it on a main artery and now mind you as a resident of ward three i i don't mind the fact that there's a burgeoning sort of precinct starting to happen down there i mean not only do you have the stadium but now you've got a a new school popping up and uh, a nice senior center going on the back of the swimming pool so uh, i mean I, I you know from a very parochial standpoint i'm happy to see all this uh... but uh, there's no question that you know, short-term political decisions um, affected, uh, you know, a, a pretty major project. A hundred and twenty-odd million dollar project was shoehorned uh, a into a neighborhood and b into a really an unrealistic timeline because of. Uh, short-term political decisions. Well, and they're trying to kick this LRT issue around, too. And again, you wonder about political interference. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about this uh, HSR uh, you know, request that City Council embraced, you know, that they do the maintenance uh, on this, this project and the operation. 
Uh, and now we know that that's probably going to delay the project. They're probably not going to tender the contracts in time. And we have no idea at this stage uh, if, in fact, they take over the maintenance of that. Well, that's going to cost you and me as taxpayers because that means they, we get the bill for it. Uh, and, and again, that's, that's council meddling in, into a project. And, and uh, here we go again. Well, I mean, there hasn't been a lot of an intelligence, in my view, frankly. I, you and I may not fully agree on this, but I don't think there's been much intelligent decision-making on LRT right from the beginning. It's, uh, you know, the, we've, we've looked at reports that have been uh, skewed in order to arrive at a, you know, a, a foregone conclusion. Just like the stadium issue. Yep. So, you know, I, I, I just think that's a, you know, let's not get going on that because I, I just think it's a terrible boondoggle uh, and, and the amount of money that is going to be at risk there is is huge. But uh, you certainly there see the, as I said earlier, the black art of report writing uh, is <laughs> very visible, let's put it that way, uh, on that project. You know, I mean, it's hard to, you know, say council meddling. I mean, they are the decision makers, but... You know, if they're going to meddle, uh, let it be informed meddling. I guess would be would be my hope. Well, and do it based on facts instead of simply you know innuendo and and, and assertion. And that's that's what they're doing right now with this issue. You're probably right. I mean, there's a very good chance that uh, when the full council deals with this issue about the Commonwealth thing, they may turn it around and said, "Yeah, go ahead and write the report." And the report may come back and they may say, "Oh, <clears throat> no, not happening." And that's fine. But at least they followed a process and simply said it did a knee-jerk vote, which is really what happened this week. Yeah, and, and I don't think the report, frankly, uh, if, if I was uh, guiding that in any way, I, I would say I, I don't think what we want is a, a report that uh, necessarily makes a recommendation, yes or no. I think the report should talk about the steps, the process. Here's, here's the information we would need to pull together. Uh, here are the timelines. Uh, you know, I'm... I'm basing my eight-year estimate on, on how it worked for the 2018 games. Uh, the serious bidding started around 2010, so I'm assuming a, it's a similar timeline. They also have a bit of a glitch there because uh, uh, the Commonwealth people had awarded the 2022 games to Durban, South Africa, and uh, Durban uh, came up. They just couldn't come up with the cash, so they're scrambling around to find another, another venue for the 2022 games. Uh, but, uh, you know, it would appear that we've got three or four years before we have to even seriously think about this. Uh, why not get a little bit of information pulled together that, that might help uh, guide counsel a little bit? Not a bad idea. John, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Okay, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, uh, this is a rather startling statistic. There have been 29 shootings so far this year on the streets of Hamilton, the total of which has surpassed all of last year. Five of those shootings have happened in the last couple of days, uh, one on the East End, uh, one on Upper Wellington. You've heard the news here on CHML even as late as this morning about police investigations. So why is this going on? Joining us to talk about this is Superintendent Ryan Diodati from Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Ryan, first of all, thanks so much for the time. It's uh, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's uh, talk a little bit about what's going on here. I mean, uh, gunplay on Hamilton streets is not something that we're used to talking about right now, and it's happening with uh, a lot more frequency uh, in the last little while. Why? Uh, you know what, Bill? At this time, we can't definitively say uh, why uh, the increase in shootings uh, this year. They've they've kind of come in, in clusters. Uh, we had uh, a bit of a 
arise at the beginning of summer. And then, uh, as you mentioned just recently, we've had uh, five over a short period of time. Uh, the interesting uh, uh, thing to consider during that time is uh, we ran a project out of uh, Investigative Services Division with the assistance from our uh, patrol divisions, uh, Project Phoenix. And during that time, uh, there wasn't one uh, reported uh, gun incident, one shooting incident during that time, and that was uh, about uh, the middle of July to, uh, to the end of August. So uh, again, uh, the focus of that uh, particular project was uh, guns and drugs. Uh, and uh, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, primarily in terms of the uh, shooting incidents that have been reported to us is uh, that drugs uh, in some way uh, plays a role in, in those incidents. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. And by the way, we should mention uh, of the five that we just talked about, the more recent ones, they're all under investigation. So I, I understand that you're still gathering information about that. And, and so we're not going to get too much in the way of uh, factual information until you guys complete those investigations. But you mentioned, uh, Ryan, and the name of the squad obviously is Guns and Drugs which uh, obviously infers that there's a strong connection. Is, is, uh, are, do we assume then that this, this rash of, of shootings that are happening right now is because of, of narcotics? Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, for various reasons, right? It, it, in some cases, they're, they're actual drug rip-offs, right? There's a one drug dealer um, using a gun to uh, either intimidate or send a message to another drug dealer, or in, in some cases, to steal drugs so that they can, therefore, uh, turn around and sell those same drugs to uh, to potential customers. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, drugs are, are definitely a motive uh, behind most of these shootings. Where are they getting the guns from? I mean, that's, uh, I guess, the bigger question right now. Uh, you know, the narcotics thing is a problem, and I know that the city's working diligently. We can talk about some of those programs uh, in a couple of seconds here. But the fact that, that firearms are being used here with a lot more frequency right now is obviously troubling uh, to, to ordinary citizens that are saying, well, wait a second, is this going to be happening in my neighborhood? I guess that's a legitimate concern now, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely a concern, Bill. Uh, the, the guns are coming from various sources. I mean, uh, you know, the, the people that are uh, that are participating in these shootings are not lawful gun owners. Uh, these guns have been obtained through uh, break-and-enters, whether it be from our city or, or, or our neighboring communities. Uh, some guns are brought up through the USA. Uh, you know, the rules uh, to purchase a, a USA in certain states is, is definitely uh, a, a lax in compared to what uh, the rules are in Canada, so they can get their, their guns in. In that fashion, so the you know the source of the guns is, is various, but uh, again, I, I do want to stress that the people, uh, generally speaking, that are involved in uh, in these shootings are not lawful gun owners. You know, I remember having a discussion. This was a couple of years ago, Ryan, with uh, one of the school uh, support officers, and, and I know you're well aware of that program that's uh, been so successful here in Hamilton. But he told me at that time, he says, you know, the students at, at the schools were telling me, he says, anybody that wanted to get a handgun could get one probably within half an hour if you knew the right person to ask, which tells me accessibility is not a problem here. Yeah, you know what, uh, they, they certainly have a network there, uh, the people that are involved, and again, uh, you know, going back to the drug uh, culture, they do have a network where if uh, if they need to obtain a firearm, I, I you know, I would suspect that it's not too difficult for them to do it. And uh, you mentioned, you know, high schools, and uh, it seems to be that, uh, you know, and, and I'll speak to our uh, most recent uh, shooting here where we uh, were looking for a wanted individual, 19-year-old male. Uh, it, it just shows you that it's, uh, you know, starting at a fairly young age. 
and and there's that element right now that you you guys must feel like that old story uh, Ryan about the little Dutch guy who's trying to plug the holes in a dike by sticking a finger in this one and then this one because uh, you're inundated and this is not a Hamilton problem this is a, a a a problem in just about every major city I guess in North America but specifically here in the Southern Ontario region. Uh, talk to us about the the work that you do with RCMP and with the OPP and other forces uh, to try to coordinate your efforts to try to stem that flow of firearms. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Bill. We have a member of the Hamilton Police Service uh, as part of the OPP, Provincial Weapons Enforcement Unit. Uh, so we work very closely with the OPP as well as the RCMP. And it could be a task force. It could be a, a, a project that's uh, long in duration. Uh, some of our projects are, as I mentioned earlier, with Project Phoenix was uh, one month in duration. So we're continually, uh, you know, comparing statistics, looking for trends, uh, and also uh, probably the biggest thing is, is sharing suspect information. And uh, again, whether or not, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, drug dealers moving from, from different jurisdictions into our area or at least find their trade in our area, we're continually meeting uh, with our car- counterparts in both the uh, drug offices as well as our, um, our guns and weapons enforcement units. Uh, again, to compare notes, to try to identify trends, and if need be, to uh, strike up a project to uh, to combat the gun violence in the in the drugs. And, and that pays off. What was it last week? I guess the OPP made that big announcement about that drug haul and and firearms, uh, one of the biggest ones I guess in in the uh, in the province's history. But uh, it, it's got to take an awful lot of work and and a lot of uh, I guess sweat and uh, interest to get the, the, you know, everybody on side with this and to try to make a, a haul like that. It absolutely does, and probably most importantly, Bill, is the cooperation from 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 members of the communities. Uh, you know, if you see something, say something. We have Crime Stoppers where you can remain anonymous and call in and provide the information. We follow up on every single Crime Stoppers tip that comes in. Uh, calling 911 when you see a crime happening. You don't necessarily have to get involved by giving your name. At least we can respond to the area, uh, you know, quickly and hopefully uh, arrest and hold accountable for the people that are, 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 are putting uh, public at risk by, you know, uh, you know, dealing with drugs and dealing with guns. How difficult is that to, to get people to come forward? And, and I can remember specifically, Ryan, as a matter of fact, I think you were in studio when uh, Chief DeCare was here a few years ago. I remember they had that shout shooting. Uh, it, it was a Sunday down around Victoria and Main Street, right around noontime, and, and that was hot on the heels of another one in the North End. And uh, I remember the chief saying at the time, it seems like everybody just seemed to have their shades pulled down. Nobody seems to want to talk about this. And uh, I know it's a lot of grunt work to go door-to-door and to try to get people to, to open up about things like this, but uh, how difficult is it to try to get information from people from the public when these sorts of things happen? Because I'm working under the assumption that somebody had to know something. Yeah, absolutely. And we have uh, we have many occasions where we know people were in the general vicinity or, or very close to the actual shooting, and we don't have them coming forward and providing the information that we require. It could be for fear of reprisal. It could be for a number of reasons why they don't want to get involved. Uh, but again, we, uh, we, we make every effort to, uh, to flesh out the uh, possible witnesses. Uh, any shooting that we have, we have our action team go into the area and do a thorough canvas, uh, check for video, knock on doors, businesses, uh, you name it. And uh, again, uh, we, we do everything and anything we can. Uh, to, to gather the information, again, to hold the people responsible for these crimes. Now, there have been some arrests, obviously, uh, in, in the drug trade especially. 
uh, and with some of these shootings over the last number of years as well. Uh, who are the perpetrators? Are, are, are these uh, single workers? Or is, is there a gang activity going on here? What's, what's happening? Because I know a number of years ago, Ryan, there was a real concern about gangs, especially some of the gangs from the Toronto area that started to, to infiltrate them. And I know that uh, uh, various chiefs, both Mullen and uh, DeCare, had set up special task forces and uh, departments to look into that. Uh, is, is that still a concern, still a problem in, in the Hamilton community? Bill, it's always a concern uh, with any kind of gang violence. Uh, we do have a dedicated, as I mentioned, a dedicated uh, gangs weapons enforcement unit that uh, t- that deals specifically with those issues. Uh, I wouldn't say that at this at this time it's a it's a concern where the the shootings that have been reported to the police are pointing to uh, directly to gang violence. Uh, again, in your interpretation and in, in, in the public's interpretation of a of a gang is uh, is somewhat. Uh, um, clouded in terms of what what is the definition of a gang, but uh, there's certainly uh, associations of groups of people. And, and again, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily gang related, but there's association, whether it be an association through the types of drugs that they uh, deal, the, through the um, the uh, the avenues that they get their drugs and acquire their drugs. Um, but uh, in terms of you know who are we looking for? I, again, I mentioned it earlier, a 19-year-old young male here who's wanted currently for the uh, the mountain uh, shooting there that took place at Upper Wentworth and Stone Church. Um, it, it, it's really uh, you name it. Uh, we we've been dealing with uh, with uh, uh, suspects from from across the across the board. Well, and it's right across the city. I know that uh, some people may be under the impression that, oh, this is only happening in certain neighborhoods. Uh, the last number of incidents that you've just talked about, Ryan, I mean, indicating up on the South Mountain right now, uh, down in the north end of the city and the east end of the city, this is, a, this is a problem that everybody needs to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. All three divisions, again, with, uh, with the assistance of the Investigative Services Division, is, is looking at this very seriously. The uh, divisional detectives in the respective divisions are working uh, tirelessly uh, to to uh, to investigate these shootings. And as you mentioned, it uh, it is not concentrated to one uh, particular geographical area in the city. Uh, we've had the shootings take place in all three of our divisions. How do how does the, the the force how does the police services deal with something like this? How do you coordinate an effort to carry on investigations like this when the information seems to be so hard to come by? Yeah, well, what, what we do is we communicate daily, uh, again, with the uh, divisional detectives as well as the investigative services division, which includes vice and drugs in our gang unit. And then the commanders from the, the, the uh, respective divisions also speak with, uh, with myself and, uh, and the inspector for investigative services, and, and we coordinate uh, uh, the investigation. And, and often we're pulling resources from different areas, whether it be uh, if it's a school-related uh, incident in terms of the suspects or, infer- or uh, people who may have information regarding the shooting, we'll reach into our school officers to uh, start uh, knocking on some doors and speaking to some of the students to see if we can gather some information to, uh, to move the investigation forward. What can we, the public, do about this? I mean, everybody's concerned about uh, public safety, obviously, and, and especially when it starts to seep into neighborhoods like this and neighborhoods that probably many of us thought this was never going to be an occurrence, but here it is now happening. Uh, it could be around the block from where you live. It could be on your street uh, these days. Uh, how, how can we help police to, to try to combat this and, and, to, and to curtail this kind of activity? 
Uh, absolutely, Bill. And you, you speak to public safety, and, and one shooting is too many. And uh, while uh, these uh, incidents have been targeted, anytime someone discharges a firearm in the public, there, there is a public safety uh, consideration. So, uh, again, Crime Stoppers is a great resource um, that uh, someone can call and re remain anonymous, provide the information. And again, I can assure you that every tip will be followed up. If, if there's an incident that's ongoing, to call 911 right away. If it's, a, if it's an incident uh, that's taking place, it's in progress. Again, obviously, a uh, shooting uh, in progress is a high-priority call for us. We will get there as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, hopefully, if, if, if uh, there's witnesses in there, that they stay around and provide the information that we require to, uh, to again, hold the people accountable for these, these dangerous incidents. i, I got to think that it's important for the people that live in these areas to be the eyes and ears for police, too. Uh, and, and not to suggest that vigilantism is the, is the solution, because it's not. But, but I know, uh, Brian, when we had discussions a few years ago about grow-ups, and there seemed to be a plethora of them all of a sudden cropping up, and at that time police relied heavily on information from people to say, if there's something different going on in the neighborhood, tell us. If you see a house that looks like it might be a problem, uh, you will investigate that. You, you really need that sort of information, I guess. Obviously, you guys can't be everywhere. No, we do, and it's intelligence-led policing at, at its best, and we're getting the information from our members of our community, and you, you touched on it. They're the eyes and ears of the community. They're, they're talking to their kids. They're talking to their neighbors. You know, people are talking about uh, these incidents. Uh, someone knows something, and again, if you know something, say something, let us know, and we will follow it up. Well, uh, continued uh, good luck with the investigations that are ongoing, and I know there are a number of them right now, including the, uh, the more pre recent one now and the, and the warrant that's out right now. If uh, uh, they have information, uh, and I understand there's always the concern about repercussions, but uh, once again, let's talk a little bit about Crime Stoppers and the, and the role that they play on here. And, and I should maybe begin the brief conversation we're going to have about that, Ryan, by suggesting Crime Stoppers is not an arm of police services. This is an independent body. Absolutely. Crime Stoppers is an independent body. Uh, we do not subscribe uh, to uh, call display. It's, uh, you know, anonymous. And uh, again, uh, in terms of uh, our follow-up, we follow up on every tip that's provided through Crime Stoppers. Uh, we'll uh, leave it at that for now. We're a little short on time, but uh, we wanted to get uh, an indication as to what's happening on this. Uh, and please, if anybody has information about any of these incidents and or about uh, what they think might be some rather sketchy activity that's going on, uh, maybe we can be preemptive instead of reactive to some of these things. Ryan, thanks so much for the time. I know it's a busy weekend for you guys. Appreciate it. Okay, Bill, thanks for having me, and have a great weekend. You too. That's uh, Superintendent Ryan Diodati from Hamilton Police Services. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.